Welcome, everybody. Spiritual psychotherapy episode. No, this I use this uh, <laughs> episode 13. Wow, I can't believe we're already 13 in. Um, we got some good stuff. I'm already very inspired from the session we just had with Rabbi Hittery. We read an amazing paper um, from Professor Samuel Liebens, who was actually here this past Shabbat, and he talks about a lot of these mystical ideas. He literally talked about rationalism and mysticism on Shabbat. My friend texted me. He said, when did you change your name to Sam Liebens? So I do feel uh, very, you know, uh, like he's very much a kindred spirit. Very funny guy. Uh, We were just reading his paper about everything being a dream in the mind of God, which is something we've discussed here many times. Um, And the the benefits of of understanding this idea of everything being like a dream in the mind of God include understanding a, a theodicy in a certain way meaning the evils that uh, that happen in this world and how to understand them is not, you know, not necessarily from this perspective, being as serious as we might have thought. If really everything is God in a panentheistic sense, everything is God and God is dreaming all of us up, then maybe there's no absolute hook to, to hold God onto Baruch Haba. So uh, that's just food for thought. If you guys, maybe next time we'll discuss more of that paper. Uh, but for now, we'll start off as we usually do. Uh, we'll continue with some of the Taoist stuff from the Tao Te Ching, and we'll sh- try to show the connections that we that we might notice to the Zohar, and we have some good stuff waiting for us in the Zohar. So let's start off. Um, so last time in the Tao Te Ching, we were talking about uh, one who lives in accordance with nature does not go against the way of things. He moves in harmony with the present moment, always knowing the truth of just what to do. So a person that's so present in the now is not obsessing about the next moment. He has a, a sense of purposelessness that is in and of itself naturally purposeful. I know I'm I'm not really making so much sense right now, but if you've ever been in that flow state, and it happens a lot when you're playing sports, you feel that way where you're naturally going along with the flow of things, but if you're being neurotic, you're probably going to hit the ball into the net if you're playing tennis. Um, so let's continue. To keep on filling is not as good as stopping. Overfilled, the cupped hands drip. Better to stop pouring. Sharpen a blade too much, and its edge will soon be lost. Fill your house with jade and gold, and it brings insecurity. Puff yourself with honor and pride, and no one can save you from a fall. Retire when the work is done. This is the way of heaven. Anybody else thinking about Shabbat right now? This is, it screams of Shabbat. The idea of when an artist finishes his painting and if he keeps adding another curly cue, another hue, another different thing, he's going to ruin that painting. You have to stop eventually. You have to just sit and be with what is. And the more you worry about attaining more and gaining more, the more you have, the more you have to worry about. So at a, a certain point, we all come to that point when we stop being as obsessed with honor and pride and gaining more, and we become more okay with just being here now. Um, and that's what it means to retire when the work is done. Yeah. But they always ask, uh, they say that Yaakov gave the, um, I'd say she team mm-hmm. to the Mishkan. Right? Yeah. Planted them in Egypt. What do you think is the meaning of that, Midrash? So, so I said, that could have given jewelry, mm-hmm. the stones were valuable, gold. But instead, he gave like the cheapest thing. Wow. Why? Because 
He didn't want them to start guarding it. Mm. Oh, this you gotta put guards for yes. seven. Wow. Yeah. This is gonna be part of the Mishkan. You can't build the Mishkan Amazing. without it, but it's uh you don't have to worry if someone's gonna steal it. I love that. I really love that. Something that sometimes the most valuable gifts are not things of a lot of value, they're things that are just present without other people wanting to take them away from us. That's often the most valuable thing. Beautiful. Carrying body and soul and embracing the one. Can you avoid separation? Can you let your body become as supple as a newborn child's? In the opening and shutting of heaven's gate, can you play the feminine part? Can you love your people and govern your domain without self-importance? Giving birth and nourishing, having yet not possessing, working yet not taking credit, leading without controlling or dominating. One who heeds this power brings the Tao to this very earth. This is the primal virtue. I think this is so beautiful because as opposed to, and I think you need both. I keep trying to make this point. I think to live a very balanced lifestyle, you need the Taoist view and you also need the, the Jewish view. You need the, the classical view that we're taught in school. So if you only believe in the being in heaven who commands of so, us of so, something and is a taskmaster and is always trying to be pleased by us, if you only believe in that view of God, what happens? The game almost becomes not worth the candle. It's not really as fun anymore. Everything is just about, you know, this pleasing, this, this being who I'm going to constantly be projecting my negative feelings towards because it's like you're so pompous and all you want is this glory. But at the same time, we need an authority figure. We need something to worship, you know, and we want to feel and it heals a, a lot of our, of our soul when we feel, we're just talking about this with the rabbi, we feel this need to have someone that is proud of us. But at the same time, this Eastern view, what does it do for us? It says there's nothing that you need to do to please God right now. Everything you're looking for, it's already there. And God is portrayed as what? As the king who abdicated the throne. Could you think of anything more humble than that? I think of like Barachin Afshi. It's almost like Hashem is so humble that he's hiding his glory. And that's why the Hachamim say anytime you ever hear about God's greatness, you also hear about God's humility. And I think it fundamentally needs to be that way. And I think in our own lives, we find that. We, uh, and I was thinking a lot the past couple of days about phony humility. I always talk about, I found the reason why Judaism it kind of made me neurotic in and of itself without some of the other psychology that I needed, maybe because I'm just crazy. But beyond that, I found uh, it was making me neurotic because it kept telling me that I needed to be humble. But I kept telling myself, well, if I know that I'm being humble, is that really humility? And you get into this crazy spiral and you start being a phony holy. You start being having this phony humility that doesn't really feel genuine. And then you, you hear this other stuff and there's other psychological stuff that says, stop trying. Stop trying to do something more because just, just your being present in the moment is the most humble thing you can do. And it's not about you knowing that you're present or you knowing that you're humble. It's just about being present because you're not trying to be like, hey, look, Ma, I made it. You know, or hey, look, God, I'm doing it because that's and it comes from a source of pain, I think. 
I think a lot of the time when we're constantly trying to seek that validation, that's what it's doing. But if you balance that out with this view of no, it's just it's there's more of a lightness and it's it's you just be just be with what is right now. In addition to the goal oriented stuff that could be setting an intention, that's fine. But just being with what is right now allows you to be present with God in a way that always setting goals does not. That's what I found. Sam never tells us that we have to praise him or mm -hmm. glorify him. Just says he took us out of Egypt and mm -hmm. created the world. It's up to us to recognize uh, agreed. that. But, but, you know, and there's nothing more beautiful than that, right? Genuine gratitude is the most beautiful thing. But if you command gratitude, it's not as beautiful. Yeah, and that's the hope, yeah. But anyway, I was going to say that all of these qualities that Hashem wants us to have, even if, you know, it feels artificial in the beginnings, you have to fake it until you make it. Until Agreed. It becomes part of their nature. And that's the whole idea. Beautiful. So you do have to struggle initially <laughs> mm -hmm. in order to make it part of your nature. No problem. But once it does, it becomes who you are. Beautiful. I think that's so beautiful. I think we're all thinking that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but fantastic point. Um, okay. 30 spokes converge upon a single hub. It is on the hole in the center that the use of the cart hinges. I think this is so interesting. So you know how like they, they say life is suffering. Everyone loves to quote that as the first noble truth. And you talk about life being dukkha. Dukkha is the word in Sanskrit that they use. The word dukkha actually doesn't really quite mean suffering. It really comes from the Shodesh, from like the root word of the lack or the really the hole at the center of a wheel. That's literally the Shodesh, the root word of this idea of a wheel, of, of Dukkha. And the question is, all right, what does this have to do with the idea of life is suffering? Well, the, the realization that I've had personally in my, you know, my deepest meditations and experiences has been that this doesn't mean that life is a tragedy or that there's only suffering in life. It means that a fundamental ingredient for the something is the nothing. The utility of the thing we're going to see now comes from the emptiness of that thing. So in order to have a wheel, if you don't have the hole in the center of the wheel, you're not going to be able to have a functional wheel. Shape clay into a vessel. It is the space within that makes it useful. Carve fine doors and windows, but the room is useful in its emptiness, right? You're not living in the walls of the room. You're living in the empty space of the room. When you're eating out of a bowl of cereal, you're not eating the bowl itself. You're eating out of the empty space in the bowl. That's the whole thing. The usefulness of what is depends on what is not. So beautifully, so succinctly stated, and it's so true. And that's the whole idea of yesh me'ayin, something from nothing. That's constantly true. In order to have life, you need to have death. In order to have pleasure, you need to have pain. Negative 10, positive 10. These things all are interdependent and interwoven. And I think the beauty of understanding this, and that's why I think it's the first truth, the first noble truth, is because it's supposed to tell us, give up on your attempt to try to only have the something without the nothing. Give up on your attempt to only have the life without the death or only have the pleasure without the suffering. And it's almost like, but I can't stop doing that. That's the whole point of these gurus is to take you and to make you go out of your mind a little bit with the attempt to try to 
get rid of desiring. They say you, 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 life is suffering and you suffer because you desire. You say, okay, let me go meditate for 10 days about that. You come back, you say, I have a problem. I'm desiring not to desire. And eventually you give up your, the hope is you, you do enough funny things that you give up your attempt to create a world in which you don't desire and you just accept what is right now, even if that includes the desire, you just watch it pass. That to me is, is where this is all heading towards. The five colors blind the eye. The five tones deafen the ear. The five flavors dull the taste. The chase and the hunt craze people's minds. Wasting energy to obtain rare objects only impedes one's growth. The master observes the world but trusts his inner vision. He allows things to come and go. He prefers what is within to what is without. So what does it mean to you guys that the five colors blind the eye, the five tones deafen the ear? To me, it sounds almost like when you say that there's a discrimination in the world between these different things, you end up really taking a snapshot of reality that doesn't do justice to reality itself. Because when you're using the sword of the mind to cut pieces out of reality, you're not really viewing the truth. You're not really viewing reality. You're viewing only subsections. And that's when the questions start to arise. And that's when really a lot of the suffering starts to arise. Um, so wasting energy to obtain rare objects only impedes one's growth. We've discussed that, that, you know, it's the constant seeking of the next thing that, that's really bothering us. But what about this thing? A person who is able to trust his inner vision is, is a master, is just observing the world. He's allowing things to come and go. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any control over anything. That doesn't mean you shouldn't set intentions and goals and create and, and do innovative things. It just means that while you're doing those things, don't be too controlling. If you're, if you're like the office manager who's constantly trying to be micromanaging everything that everybody's doing, what happens? You're not really going to have productivity. You're going to have people that are just totally, you know, resenting you and and uh you're probably going to decrease productivity if you're too micromanaging but if you really want to be a successful manager you find the right balance between how much am i involved in and aware of what people are doing and how much am i kind of hands off and allowing people just to do what they're doing that's that's i think the beauty of it favor and disgrace seem alarming high status greatly afflicts your person why are favor and disgrace alarming? Seeking favor is degrading, alarming when it is gone, and alarming when it is lost. Why does high status greatly afflict your person? The reason we have a lot of trouble is that we have selves. If we had no selves, what trouble would we have? So simple, right? Oh, if, if only you didn't have a self, you would have no trouble. <laughs> exactly. It's big dollar exactly. So it's amazing to me, like, it's, it's funny because we could, we could understand what he's saying, but it's, it sounds like the most arduous task in the world. But what does it mean to have no self? It means to be so present in this moment that I'm not defining myself as being within my body. I'm more of like this field of awareness, like Morris Bennon will tell you about, uh, you know, uh, Rabbi Sassoon's book, Reality Revisited. He talks about, you know, consciousness as being a field of awareness. If you're able to get your consciousness out of the limits of this body, what are you doing? 
you're really de-selfing yourself. You're getting rid of this limited self-impression. And, uh, you know, a, a part of this, this discussion, I think, is important because when you're seeking favor or you're seeking some kind of praise, what is that doing? That's putting you more in yourself. That's putting you more into the ego, into this separateness. But if you, and, and the funny thing is what he says, both things are alarming. It's alarming to seek favor and it's alarming to lose that favor. So why do either? If favor finds you, that's fine. We say about Moshe Rabbeinu when he wrote Vayikra, right? He wrote a little Aleph, a small Aleph. Why? Because Bil'am, it said Vayikar. Hashem happened upon him. Vayikra is like, wow, such a big deal. Hashem called him. So Moshe had so much humility that he didn't want to even write a big Aleph. So the, the Hachamim say, If you run away from dignity and glory and pride, it'll chase after you. And we see that so often with people. We see that so often with, with uh, the way that, that people are you know, uh, acting in the world. You can notice this guy is so humble, and yet everyone respects him so much. He's not a, a person that's demanding that respect, but the respect just kind of finds him. We all know people like that. And then on the other hand, we are the exact opposite of somebody who's seeking out all of this respect. Except for Korach. Except for Korach. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what was he? He was seeking out the respect. You think he got the respect? Well, supposedly he was a giant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was... Uh, uh, it depends, I guess, which which Midrashim, but yeah, I, I could agree with that. Um, but I think at, at the end of the day, a person who is haughty and high and mighty on himself is usually not going to be respected. That's just kind of the way we evolved as humans. Part of the, the social dynamic within a troop of chimpanzees is probably like that. The alpha male... It's not the one with the most testosterone, not the most aggressive one. It's the guy that is the right balance of the aggressiveness and the social skills and the ability to build a rapport. Because if you're the strongest guy and you don't care about anybody else, the, the beta males are going to overtake you and kill you. But the alpha male ends up being the one who is respected at the same time as he is very you know, strong. It, you have to have the right balance of those two things. Um, man's true self is eternal. Yet he thinks, I am this body and will soon die. If we have no body, what calamities can we have? One who sees himself as everything is fit to be guardian of the world. One who loves himself as everyone is fit to be teacher of the world. I think that's so beautifully stated because... If you see yourself in everything and in everyone, you're going to fundamentally be behaving in a much more moral sense. That's like the ultimate the ultimate moral imperative that we know of. Do not do unto others as you would not wish to be done unto you. It's almost taken to the nth degree if you say, I look at another person. And I say, that's me possibly in another lifetime or right now. Exactly. That's me in a... In a very deep in the truest sense of it, really, that's me. And if, it's, yeah. It's like, you know, like the last one with, uh, you know, like losing yourself, like you're you're not so inside, which means you're you're outside. Yes. Which means you're with every, kind of bleeds into this one where it's like now. Beautiful. Now I lost myself, now I'm with, I'm outside, I'm not in here, I'm out there. And so I'm not because the, you're me and you're me, you know. Yes, yes, 100%. And I, you always give that very nice analogy of the porcupines. Mm. 
right? And, you know, so if you say, oh, that's me over there, I should give him my house, I should give him all my food. You have to find the balance, obviously, because you're you too. <laughs> yeah. He's you and you're you in a, in a sense. And if therefore, I need to find the right balance between how much do I want to, you know, respect this this side of me and that side of me over there. And I think that's the balance we all are finding naturally in a Taoist sense. It's just flowing like water, the way we find that. Um, and, you know, one who loves himself as everyone is fit to be teacher of the world. You want to teach and you want to give and you want to really be this wellspring of love when you see yourself in others. Uh, and we'll do this last section before we do the Zohar. That which cannot be seen is called invisible. That which cannot be heard is called inaudible. That which cannot be held is called intangible. These three cannot be defined. Therefore, they are merged as one. So whenever trying to describe this ineffable, right, that which cannot be spoken about is ineffable. So we 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 would want to talk about it. Can it be seen? Can it be heard? Can it be held? No, it's none of those. It could also be talked about as what it's not. But the beauty is we can merge all these things as one. It's it's none of those things, and therefore it's it's kind of one because it's not any of that stuff. Each of these exactly that's basically the way we talk about Hashem. Exactly. Each of these three is subtle for description. By intuition, you can see it, hear it, and feel it. Then the unseen, unheard, and untouched are present as one. So this has a lot to do. I think it's it's what is this saying? It's it almost sounds like a contradiction. It's saying you intuitively you see it, hear it, feel it, right? This world around us, it feels real, and you hear it, you know, smell it, all that stuff. But they say before Satori, rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains. Satori is like enlightenment. So before Satori, rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains. During Satori, river, or during that path of enlightenment, rivers cease to be rivers and mountains cease to be mountains. They become like this intangible, ineffable thing. After Satori, rivers are rivers and mountains are mountains. Why? Because no longer are you thinking about it as, oh, it's not really there. It's just an illusion. That's part of the journey. But once you get to that feeling of just being here now, you can appreciate it as such. Also knowing at the same time that it's not just a mountain and it's not just a river. Really, it's self, non-self, self-non-self. It always has to be both at the same time. Water is just water. Exactly. I'm not Michael Franco. I'm Michael Franco universe. The water is just water on the one end, but it's also water universe. Everything is everything dash universe. It's rising brings no dawn. It's setting no darkness. It goes on and on. Untamable. Returning into nothingness, right? So all this reality is almost like everything is a different river flowing all into that same ocean, which was its source and also is its convergent destination. Approach it and there is no beginning. Follow it and there is no end. You cannot know it, but you can be it at ease in your own life. Wow. To me... That's what it's all about. It's not something I can tell you with words. It's not something that I can put in your brain. It's something that you have to experience, and I have to experience personally, is being that nothingness at the same time as I'm being this somethingness. And this idea of it having no beginning and no end, that's something to experience when you fully 
come into contact with, wow, there's this nothingness behind all of reality that that's almost the truest thing. And it's always flowing into the somethingness back and forth, back and forth. Discovering how things have always been brings one into harmony with the way. Beautiful. Okay. So now we'll shift gears and we'll continue with studying the Zohar. Um, I hope you guys appreciated that because I, I think it's so beautiful and so profound. Um, so now last time we left off in the Zohar, we were talking about uh, Bereshit. We were talking about a Pasuk from Yeshaya that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Al-Azad, his son, were being Doresh. And once Rabbi Al-Azad was silent, it allowed for his father to fully expound upon the meaning of this Pasuk and how the Sifidot work. And this was really pretty deep. Um, so we'll continue now with the words of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and see what he has to say. And uh, basically, Rabbi Al-Azad ben Rabbi Shimon was so happy that he was silent because he, it allowed him to not only understand the kingdom down here, but also the kingdom above, the upper realms of reality. And like we always say, this is the, all these sefirot seem to be some kind of meditative technique to understand God. Rabbi Shimon said, from here on, the completion of the verse, as is written, the one who brings forth their array by number. So we said this, the Pasuk began with, lift up your, your eyes to the heavens and see who created these. And it's from Yeshaya Perek Mim. Um, so we, we continue reading that Pasuk and it continues, who is that one? The one who brings forth their array by number. And then the Pasuk, you know, finishes, you look here in the, in the uh, footnote, who brings forth their array by number and calls them each by name because of his great might and vast power, not one is missing. It's almost like God is so fundamentally involved in all of creation from this perspective that he knows every star that's that's out there. He, he's aware of every single grain of sand, every mote of dust in the entire universe. These are two rungs, each of which should be inscribed. One is what, the other who. We said last time, what is ma, that's Shekhinah, that's the lowest of the Sefirot. And we said, who, me, is what, is Bina. And that's, uh, you know, the uh, higher among the Sefirot. And it's the one that got together with Chokhmah to create the rest of the Sefirot. This is above, that is below. The one above is inscribed by the words, right? So now we're talking about Bina, the mother of all Sefirot. Inscribed by the words, the one who brings forth their array by number, the one who is known beyond compare. So there's something about Bina that is so totally uh, ineffable and, and known beyond compare that it's it's almost like a mystery. And that's why it's called who? Me, right? The Bishamon interprets the opening letter He of Hamotzi here as who brings forth as a definite article. So it's the one who brings forth is Bina. That's just a dikduk thing, a uh, grammatical thing. Um, the one who is known, the, the lower rung, uh, sorry, the one who brings forth bread from the earth, right? So, similarly, so sorry. Similarly, the one who brings forth bread from the earth. So, right? We say in the blessing over bread, the one who brings forth bread from the earth, it's the same kind of definite article. It's a being, it's God, it's bina in this case. The one who is known, the lower rung, and all is one. Um, somehow, even though we're talking about them as separate, they really are all one. Shekhinah is modeled on Bina and shares her name, Elohim, and is also known as Earth. So very interesting. So Shekhinah and Bina 
both feminine um, sefirot, and they both kind of share this name Elohim. And Elohim becomes Elohim over the higher realm when Binah creates her stuff. And Elohim becomes Elohim over this world, over earth, when it creates this world, this physical world. ID, welcome. Baruch Haba, we were waiting for you. Great. So now, oh, ID, you're muted. Now? Yeah, now you're good. Okay, thanks. Great. Um, so now by number, 600,000 standing together, generating forces according to their kind beyond number. Right? So it's interpreting this idea in the pasuk of all the stars or whatever, saying 600,000. What does this mean? Says the commentary. The number represents the six sefirot between Bina and Shekhinah, which generate innumerable offspring. So somehow the pasuk is really talking about the, the six sefirot in between um, the Bina and the Shekhinah because there's the 600,000 here. And calls them each by name, both the 600,000 and their forces. What does this mean by name? If you say they were called individually by name, not so, for then the verse should read, Ish al each by his name. Rather, as long as this rung has, had not ascended and was still called me, right? As long as it was still called Bina and me, who? It did not give birth nor bring forth what was hidden, each according to its kind, though all of them were hidden within. Right? So until Bina gave birth to all of these offspring of the Sefirot, it was not considered Elohim. And it, it had kind of in, in its intention inscribed in its will before creating those lower sefirot, what did it do? It had the intentionality inscribed in it. It had the intention of creating the potential for that stuff. So that's where time becomes weird. Because if time is an illusion, then what does that mean about the potential for the world before it was created? That's just a way of speaking. Really, the, the right here, right now exists simultaneously with the before of creation, even though you can you really even talk about before creation if time is an illusion. It really just becomes confusing. Once it created Ele, once it created these, and it tamed its name Elohim, right? Once Binah created that stuff and became Elohim, then by the power of this name, it yielded them perfectly. So that's when it earned the name Elohim. This is the meaning of calls them each by name. By its very name, it called forth each and every kind to exist perfectly. Similarly, in, in Shemot, it says, See, I have called by name Betzalel, right? So, why is now it gets very beautiful? Why is the Zohar bringing up the creation of the Mishkan in, his, in our discussion of the creation of the world? Let's see. Uh, so, let's see what the footnote says, referring to the chief artisan, as we know. Uh, I mentioned my name so that Betzalel would attain perfect existence. So God taught something to Betzalel for him to attain perfect existence, almost to understand what it's like to be God, to create, is what you need to be a creator for God. His great might, um, so let's see, that's that's the next part of the Pasuk in Yeshaya, his great might. This is the continuation of the verse, because of his great might and vast power, not one is missing, as we cited above. So what is this? What is this great might? First of rungs, right? Talking about um, Bina, to which all desires ascend, ascending there secretly. Somehow all these desires are ascending secretly towards, ah, sorry, first of rungs is actually talking about Keter, 
It's talking about the first of all the sefirot, my mistake. Also known as ratzon, also known as will or desire. Very interesting. Somehow keter being at the crown of literally all of the sefirot is the, the will of God. It is the desire. And it's that to which all desires and all prayers are ascending. Um, it's either that saying here or chokhmah, the first sefirah that can be identified. Because keter is in this liminal space between ensof and chokhmah, between infinity and chokhmah. It might not even be the first sefirah. So it's either that or chokhmah that we're talking about here. That's the great might and power of God. Secret. Mike, Mike. What, yes. what's, what's the definition? What's the uh, definition of ratzon? Ratzon means will, like desire. Yeah. But what does it mean secretly? So let's see. Ascending, to which all desires ascending there secretly. I don't know. I think possibly this idea of secretly is there is this mystery of how does everything converge towards God? How do our prayers arise towards God? And it's almost like this, this secretive. It's like a placeholder word for Exactly. That's the way I write it. But it could be, you know, something like uh, hiding from the devils. Who knows? You know, that's beyond my scope. But yeah. the, Mike, the guys, yeah. the 36 guys, that yeah. the hidden guys, they have the answer? The Lamed Vav Sadiqim. <laughs> I did. I thought you were one of them. No, so I'm going to tell you something right now. You're going to cry. Once when my rabbi told me, he said, I did, there's 36 Nistarim. So I said, Rabbi, what's that? It's like 20 years ago. So he tells me, ID, those are the guys that are, they're hidden Sadiqim. They could be anybody. So I said to Rabbi, it could be me. So my Rabbi, who I love, he looked at me and he said, ID, if they bump the number to 72, you're still out. <laughs> <laughs> that was RN told you that? RN. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Amazing. Amazing. But the 36 guys know have the secret. They have the secret, no? That's right. That's right. There was a show with uh, <laughs> the Kiefer Sutherland. There was a show about him and having an autistic child. And when his autistic child was one of oh, these Lamed Vav. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Wow. You got you to gotta check that out. Very interesting. Lamed Vav is 36. Lamed Vav is 36. 36. Exactly. Right. Right. Like, this thing. Beautiful. I love interesting. that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll come up in the Zohar. Yeah. Of course, yeah, exactly. Always got to be something with numbers. Yeah, accountants. Yeah. So, and Vespar, mystery of the upper world. Ah, so that's secretly the next thing is talking about mystery. Maybe that's why I said that the upper world is Bina. So, there's a mysterious nature to how did this happen? How did Chokhmah join with Bina to create the, the these Sefirot and then the rest of the world? It's a mystery. That's the vast power of God, which attained right. the name Elohim, and that's how it got the name Elohim. As we have said, right, because the Ele is the lower six and the Mi is the Bina. So you put Ele and Mi together, you get Elohim. Um, not one is missing, not one of this, those 600,000 generated by the power of the name. Uh, so all these beings, uh, all these celestial beings are not missing because not one is missing. Whenever any of the children of Israel died as punishment for their sins, the people were counted and not even one of the 600,000 was lacking. So why is now, is, we're getting, again, we're getting a comparison between the, the physical world and the spiritual world. We had it between Betzalel and God, right? We said Betzalel is the artisan who created the tabernacle, the Mishkan. 
And now we're having a comparison between these 600,000 celestial beings and the 600,000 children of Israel. As we know, it says in the Torah that we were like 600,000 people leaving Egypt. The total number of males, of course, also is 603,550, according to the, the actual censuses. The 600,000 Israelites parallel the 600,000 divine forces. So it's continuing to try to show you this parallelism between the upper and lower realms. Um, if even one of them had been missing at Har Sinai, they would have been worthy, they, sorry, they would not have been worthy of receiving the Torah. That's a beautiful midrash. It's saying if even one soul among the 600,000 was missing, we would not be worthy of receiving the Torah. And it's saying that's the importance of every single person, every single soul. We're all part of this divine dance. We're all part of the symphony. Every one of our lives is a fundamental note in the divine symphony. And the song of existence would be totally different if any one of us didn't exist as we exist. In that sense, you're perfect. In that sense, you're beautiful just for being you right now. Don't take it too far. Don't go, you know, shoot up heroin on the street and, and hurt people. But the point is, there is a transcendent beauty in just being known that you are part of the godliness of the world. Are you? Exactly, exactly. The mosaic of it all. Beautiful. So that everything accorded with the paradigm, just as not one is missing above, so not one is missing below. They make it very explicit here in the Zohar. Just like Hashem cares about every one of the celestial beings up there. He also cares about every single one of us down here. And you see what I'm saying, what I said earlier in the class. I was trying to say, if you only take Taoism, where it's this, this, this uh, king who abdicated the throne, I feel alone. I feel totally out of place in this universe, in a sense, if I don't also feel. So it's funny, because on the one hand, you'll say, if you do believe in a God, a separate God, you're going to feel out of place because you are separate from the universe and separate from God. But at the same time, you also feel out of place without a God. Because then what? Because then it's like, what am I even doing here? What's the purpose of my life? Where am I headed? It's the whole dichotomy between a journey and a destination on the one hand, which we need to believe in on the one hand, and at the same time, it being totally musical and dance-like in this moment. And it's intrinsically valuable in this moment without needing a further justification. So the leader who abdicated his throne is a nice perspective to take sometimes. And the, the king who cares about me and knows me and is parenting me and loving me is also important. So I see it almost like the balance between the love that we exude and the love that we receive. Maybe the Taoist stuff allows you more to see yourself as exuding love towards the universe. And maybe the Jewish stuff allows you more to realize the, as well that you're receiving love from a being who actually cares about you. And you need to kind of flip the channels. And I'm not saying Judaism can't hold both and Taoism can't hold both. But I think for me, that's kind of the way I connect to it sometimes. Just something you know, to think about. A lot of like Abraham Avinu did chesed. Oh, know. for sure. So for there sure. You there you go. It's right in there. Giving love. 100%. 100%. But the, 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 the fundamental reason I say that is because it's like, what can I ever give God? If God is this infinite being. So the, the, the mystics will tell you. We love God with the love that God gave us to love God. The only thing you can give God is what already God gave you to give him. And that's the beauty and that's the humility is that I can never really give God anything. So I think you need kind of both perspectives. I think that's a beautiful well, God point. Need it. Exactly. 
But at, at the same time, though, you know, he gave us freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. So we don't necessarily have to love God. Exactly. So I mean, we do have that freedom of choice. And so if we do it, we're giving it to him in such a way that he can appreciate it because it's our choice. Yes. Like Rabbi Abraham Heschel says, uh, God in search of man. He, he wants us from one perspective. He needs us from one perspective. Right, but he doesn't want it forced because if you you know you have a gun to someone's head, love me. Exactly, it's not, it's not real love. Exactly. So it has to be by choice. Um, mm -hmm. Mikey, what Mike? What's so what? So what's the script that it says? Fear God and then love God. What is that? Hmm. So so that's uh, the we were saying before. You know, you you wing it till you or you fake it till you make it. You know, you start winging it and then uh, you start doing it out of fear. As an elementary right. school, you know, kid, you're, you're doing it because you don't want to get punished by God. But eventually, as you get older, you say, all right, you know what? I'm not just doing this out of fear of punishment. I'm doing the mitzvot because I love God and because uh -huh. I see this as benefiting myself. And it's it's just love. It's just out of a genuine desire to connect with the universe, with my creator, and to express the love that I feel. As right. opposed to, I don't want God to punish me for not being grateful. You know, but I think you kind of need that as a kid. You can't really teach love to a kid either. It's almost, I mean, you can, you can, but it's harder to teach that discipline, I guess. You, you, the kids are not really going to do the mitzvot unless they have some kind of idea of consequences without it. And you got to teach a kid, don't touch the fire. Touch the fire, you're going to get burned. You know, that's that kind of energy, I think. But adults still, unfortunately, in our Of course, society, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I think everybody does. Everybody, everybody needs be both. Able to get rid of policing? Uh, I wouldn't have to the play. big plus is, but the big plus is as a kid, the kid's cur curiosity is in a kid. So that might be an opening for the kid to want to, you know, get involved. You know, Absolutely. I think it's something to be cultivated and explored with the kid. Right. Oh, dad's doing. Exactly. I'm doing, you know. Absolutely. And then eventually they're, they're faking it. They're doing it because I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing it because God wants it. Um, but, uh, but then eventually they'll but do it. But a parent could do a bad thing mm -hmm. like, like, smoking a joint uh -huh. for example then mm -hmm. uh, then a kid can go oh i'll smoke a joint too or i'll take this too yeah it goes it goes both ways yeah then eventually the kid becomes their own person and does yeah. Their own thing. yeah absolutely good points all around so now we finally got to better sheet <laughs> better sheet in the beginning rab hamenuna says we find the letters backward what does he mean we find the letters backward could, it, could anybody think about it What's the first two words of the Torah? Bereshit, bara. Both of them start with a bet. What's the next two words? Elohim, et. The next two words both begin with an aleph. So it's like, all right, why are we starting with two bets and then having two alephs? Like, what's going on? It's backwards. Um, bet first, followed by bet. Bereshit in the beginning, followed by bara, created. Then aleph first, followed by aleph, Elohim, followed by et. The reason is, when the blessed Holy One wished to fashion the world, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world, all the letters were hidden away. For 2,000 years before creating the world, the blessed Holy One contemplated them and played with them. As he verged on creating the world, all the letters presented themselves before him from last to first. So let's see what all of this is saying. So we find the letters backwards, as we said. Hidden away, before creation, the letters were concealed within the divine mind and arranged in reverse order. Somehow it started with Taf all the way to Aleph. 
um, for 2,000 years. So if you look in Bereshit, Rabbah, and the Midrash, Rabbi Shimon, Oresh Lakish said, the Torah preceded the creation of the world by 2,000 years. So what does that mean? Why is Rish Lakish saying this? And then it's amazing because they talk about the world itself and the course of the world being exactly 6,000 years. And they say the first 2,000 years are chaos, I think. Then 2,000 years of evil and then 2,000 years of order or something like that. I forgot exactly the order of it, but it's it seems to be like an archetypal view of time as being broken down into these 2,000-year blocks. So just that's part of the background of this. And now, what, is this, what does this mean for there to be 2,000 years in which God was contemplating existence or that the Torah preceded creation by those 2,000 years? It seems like it has something to do with the importance of the Torah in and of itself existentially ontologically. That the Torah is not just something that happened out of existence. The Torah is not just something that naturally developed, even though you can say that, and from a, bless you, from one perspective, you could say that. But from the other perspective, what do you also want to say? You want to say as well, no, the Torah is so fundamentally a part of existence. Like the Hachamim say, that God looked at the blueprint of Torah and from that blueprint of Torah created the world. That sounds absurd. It's like, what do you mean? How do you how do you create the world from a text about the world? Don't they depend on each other? And the point is, it's trying to flip on its head what you might be thinking. You might be thinking the Torah is there to explain the world. And it's like, no, no, no. The world is there to explain the Torah. In what sense? That this dream in the mind of God that we might talk about, this existence that we have, would not be worth it unless the Torah was intended to be created at some point. So the, the Achamim famously say, In order for Israel to be created, and all of the implications of that, and the morality of the world, and you know, bringing a light to the world, if not for that, there would be no purpose in creating the world. And the Torah is a huge part of the importance of what this world is. Um, the Torah was a blueprint for the world. Exactly. Exactly. And I think it's probably in a way both, but it's trying to say like, it's so important that there would be no point in having a world without it. Um, and, and that's what it means for it to say that there were 2000 years in which God was contemplating the Torah, because it's like, this is the whole point. Oh, and to the degree that I'm going to proceed creation with Torah, and then I'm going to create the world so that I could see Torah play out. That's the way it's 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 kind of painting this picture. And look how beautiful this goal-directed view is. If we only take the musical view and only take the dancing view, then what of morality? What of all these beautiful parts of life that wouldn't exist if you only had music, right? There has to be maybe some meaning to the music from this perspective. Um, okay, great. And sorry, we said and when God was going to create the world, all the letters presented themselves before him. This is a, a story from Alpha Beta de Rabbi Akiva. Um, and the, the Zohar is drawing from this. So now let's see how this continues. Very interesting point here. So what came first to God? What presented itself to God? The letter Tav entered, entered first of all, right? Imagine all the letters are coming into the divine kingdom. They're saying, God, God, please create the world with me. Pick me, pick me, pick me. The first one was Tav, the last letter of the alphabet. The letter Tav entered first of all. She said, Master of the worlds, 
may it please you to create the world by me. For I complete your seal, emet, truth, and you are called truth. It is fitting for the king of truth to begin with a letter of truth and to create the world by me. So how beautiful is this? The word emet, the word in Hebrew for truth, is emet, and it ends with the letter tav. So God, and it's it's saying basically to God, you are all about truth. And right from Yirmiyahu Perek Yod Pasuk Yod 10-10, 10 wins, of course. <laughs> you know, Yirmiyahu says, Yod ke vavke Elohe emet, or Elohim emet. God, you are the God of truth. And if God's seal is that truth, and if that's who God is fundamentally, is truth, then you should create the world by my letter because I close off that truth. And what does that even mean? That So why, why not Aleph? Aleph is the first letter of Emet. Well, I think to end the word truth, you need a definitive ending to it. It needs to be Emet. The same way to have a creation, you need to have boundaries. And then it's only once the boundary is set, then it's stopping there. So you look at the difference between the, the, the words in English and the words in Spanish. Spanish is a lot more sing-songy and beautiful because everything ends in a oh and a ah. But in English, we end words with consonants. We don't end words in vowels. And it's it's almost like there's a, a definitive truthfulness to English. I'm not saying people speak Spanish are lying, but I'm saying it's more of a sing-songy beauty to it. And like when you when you have a ending every word of the consonant, that's like emit. It's ending it right now. Well, but also, and that's truth. Yeah. Argue that what if somebody finishes a task that somebody else started, the person who finished the task yeah. gets the credit, like Yehoshua has to yes. the of Amen. Yes. So at the same time, Tuff mm. did finish the task. Beautiful. There would be no, it would just be M. It wouldn't right. be a word without sure. the, the ending of it, well, for sure. A word, but maybe not mm-hmm. that word. Yeah, and we, and we say, exactly. We say, Nidon al-Shem Sofa, right? You're, you're judged based on your ending. Uh, that kind of energy as well. There's a, this, uh, mm-hmm. you know, there's a music artist, Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. and like he was asked, like, what is music? You know, like, how do you define music? Like, as long as it has a border around, like, uh, like as long as it has a border, it's music, you know? Like, very interesting. Beginning and an end. So, like, the borders are very important. Absolutely. And and that's, you look in Barechi Nafshi, talking about the creation of the world, mm-hmm. and it's saying, Hashem, the way that you created everything is that you gave everything boundaries, especially with the waters. You told the waters, okay, up until here, stop there. That's where the dry land starts. And if you didn't make the boundary, there would be no thing. And that's the way that space is. What is space? Space is the boundary of existence. That if there was no space, there would be no room for us to exist. And that's sorry, something I mentioned, I wanted to mention before, because we were talking about Betzel El and, and comparing him to God in a way, right? Betzel El, right? In the in the shadow of God, Betzelem Elohim, in the image of God, you could read all that into who Betzel El was as the artisan of the Mishkan. And the point is. We are, you know, uh, allocating out a space for God the same way that God allocates out a space for us. And that's what it means to be in the shadow of God. That's what it means to want to create like God is to say, Hashem, you created a space for me. I want to give back to you. I want to create a space for you. Michael. Yes. Mike, how does, how does the word boundaries play a role if you want to expand your your love and belief and commitment to Hashem. Beautiful. I think boundaries, so yeah, we always talk about, you know, in order to connect to God, to connect to the universe, see beyond boundaries. I think that's true. 
But at the same time, if you only love the general, if you only love the whole thing as a whole, you lose the love of the particular. I think if you don't love the individual things as they are, you're not going to be able to love a person or an object or a song. It's always going to be, oh, I only love things in general. So I think a way to love God is also through right. loving the particular. So I actually gave this as a derasha once for parashat yitro, because the parashat yeah. begins with like Moshe's personal life. Like his wife came back and his father-in-law and the, he had sent her away. And it's like, what's going on? This is the parasha where we're going to talk about the biggest general cosmic phenomenon in the history of the world, which is the giving of the Torah. So why are we talking about Moshe's personal life? And I think the point of it is, a lot of the, the Mepharshim pick up on this, is that in order to have the Torah, you have to have the Yitro stuff. You have to have the guy who's telling you, you have to have boundaries. You have to allocate the, job, the work. Mm. You have to take care of your wife. You have to be a person who loves the particulars, balancing that out with loving the general cosmic nature of the world. Mm. Family comes first no matter what. Exactly. A hundred percent. And you can't, you know. Spiritual importance of something is, you know. Exactly. And you hopefully you find the spiritual importance in the family. It's the, it's the, it's the Exactly. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Right. So you're saying basically if it's gated, then you, you're more defined on performing. Exactly. And you you kind of, you know what's what in a way, in a sense that allows you to be in a loving relationship with something. Because if there's, if there's no boundary, then there's just nothing. Right. Right, and that's, right. that's something to connect with at times, but not all the time. Right. Uh, right. The 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 blessed holy one replied, "You are seemly and worthy, <coughs> not deserving to initiate creation, since you are destined to be marked on the foreheads of the faithful who fulfilled the Torah from Aleph to Taf, and by your mark they will die. Furthermore, you are the seal of Mavit of death." So you do not deserve to serve as the instrument of creation. She immediately departed. All right, so let's see what this means. So you are destined to be marked. So if you look in Yehezkel, Perek, Tet, He Yelkevavke, Hashem called to the man dressed in linen with the scribe's kit at his wrist. And Yelkevavke said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark, Tav, on the foreheads of those who moon, who moan and groan over all the abominations being committed in it, right? So not moon, but moan, right? So uh, all the people who are who care about what's happening to Jerusalem put a tav on their foreheads. Um, so this is basically, uh, I think, what it was saying is is let's see, the, all these people are destined to be marked with this, and that's why you you. You are you're not deserving to initiate creation, but you are deserving to be on the foreheads of these people because you care so much about this stuff. Um, and all these people who who are caring about Torah, fulfilling it from Aleph to Tav, um, that they're, they're going to die with that symbol on them. And that's a zechut. It's a zechut to have the letter Tav on your forehead, uh, to to be the letter on the foreheads of the people who care so much. That's what God is telling her. Um, though, in in the old Hebrew script. The Tav was shaped like an X. Very interesting. So in Ketav Ivri, we have currently Ketav Ashuri. And we have Assyrian script. If you had the Hebrew script, ancient, the original way that it was written on the Ten Commandments, the simplest mark, right, is X. And X marks the spot. Tav was written as an X. 
And it's the simplest mark. Its purpose in Yehazkel was to distinguish the righteous from the rest of the population. But according to Rabbi Aha ben Rabbi Hanina in Masechet Shabbat, even those marked were killed, since their silence in the face of the wicked implicated them. So they were simple good people, but they were still silent in the face of the wicked. That's according to the to the, the, the more Midrashic reading in the, the Gemara. But just the simple meaning was the good people were marked with an X. And that's a zechut for the tav. Uh, and the, and but it's saying also, you know, I'm sorry to break it to you, tav, but uh, you are also the seal of mavit. You're the seal of death. The last letter of the word death is tav. The word mavit death ends with the letter tav, of course. The letter shin came before him. She said, "Master of the worlds, may it please you to create the world by me, for by me you are named Shaddai." And it is fitting to create the world by a holy name. So beautiful, right? So Sheen now, after Tav came, now Sheen is saying, now I want to be the letter that, that starts off the Torah because your name, Shaddai, it begins with Sheen. He replied, Hashem replies, you are seemly, you are good, and you are true. But since letters of deceit take you as their accomplice, I do not wish to create the world by you. For a lie cannot exist unless Chofresh take you. So let's see what that means. Letters of deceit. So the word Sheker, right, of course, lie, begins with the letter Shin and continues Chofresh. Um, so that's just, it's saying, you know, the, the when you have just Shin on its own, it's beautiful. But when you add the Kofresh, and what's so interesting? Oh, no, I guess, no, sorry. I, I was going to say it's almost like <laughs> there's, there's, those are three letters in a row. Shin, Resh, Kof are three letters in a row. So, but when, when these other letters grab you and you become Sheker, you go from being very beautiful to becoming their accomplice in lying. And it's the opposite of Tav. Tav was Emet. Now it's Sheker here. Um, so whoever wants to tell a lie will first lay a foundation of truth with the Shin and construct the lie with the Kof, Resh. Right? So it's saying, but it's saying a lesson in general. Uh, when somebody wants to tell a lie, they're going to say some truthfulness about it, and then they're going to lie the rest of the way. For Sheen is a letter of truth, a letter, a true letter of the patriarchs who are, who are united in it, right? So what does that mean, that the, the, that the, the patriarchs are united in Sheen? Uh, the three prongs of the Sheen stand for the three patriarchs. So if you look at the way Sheen is written in today's Hebrew, there's three prongs to it, as you see here. Um, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov are represented by each of them, who symbolize the triad of Sefirot, Hesed, Givura, and Tiferet. Of course, those are the, the three Sefirot that are represented by Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Um, Kofresh are letters that appear on the evil side. What does that mean? Perhaps because they stand for Kelipa, Kelipa, or husk, and Ra, evil. So maybe it's possible that the sitra ahra, the, the evil side of, of creation of the world, has something to do with these letters kofanesh because kilipa, the externalities of things, and ra and evil begin with those letters. In order to survive, they entangle the letter shin, forming kesher, conspiracy. Seeing this, she left his presence. Right. So uh, interestingly enough, you take the kof and the resh, and you put the sheen in the middle of them, and you get a conspiracy, you get a keshet. We know that from Milachim, right? Mm -hmm. Whenever there was a rebellion or like a coup. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
with my rabbi in a barkai, we used to say, like, it's in the house, like, it's called Fedashin. But if you put the sheen in red, it's lying to you. Ah, it's great. Amazing. It's a problem, most likely, <laughs> honestly. So I'm going to, you know, we'll continue next time with, with Sadi. But I just want to make the point, I think that these are very cute things, but at the same time, I think they carry a lot of depth. And they're making very philosophical points about, about creation. And, you know, Hashem wants to create the world with emet, but he can't. And there's a famous Midrash, or by Saxley used to like to quote, Allah Shalom, where in order to create the world, Hashem took the angel of truth and threw it on the ground. And everyone was, you know, all the angels were saying, what about your angel of truth? How could you do this? He's like, in order to create humanity, I have to put truth on the ground. And you can't create the world with only truth, with only justice, because it needs some compassion. It needs like the rahamim, the rahim, the compassion of the womb and the empty space. And like we, we began with the Tao Te Ching of the, the whole functionality of the thing is the empty space. And in, in creating the world, that's what God did. He, he allocated a space for us to grow and develop and maybe have free will within this dream of the, in the mind of God. I would love to hear your, your questions or comments. Well, Shin actually stands also for Jemayim, so Yeah, beautiful. That's, Absolutely. I mean, Shaddai is more than a good enough reason to use it. Exactly. I know. So. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. You can always find a negative kind of word associated with every letter. I know. Well, we have to wait to the end to get the hour. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I guess we're going to have to and see. We know the ending, but we'll find out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's very <laughs> suspenseful. Or really bet. It starts with bet in the end. We'll see yeah. why. Well, yeah, we'll get yeah, yeah. So we should have learned this when we were in yeah. first grade. Yeah. yeah. Any questions from any anybody in Zoom or on person? I just right. well, I used to think the Sadiq Yeah. Right? Everybody, I they used to some of the teachers used to teach like, oh Sadiq, <laughs> you know, or Hayat. I'm like, Hayat is a sin. Right. But sin is a sin, you know, it's it's very it's a pretty funny thing. Great job, guys. Really, always a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed, and, and there's a lot of deep That's ideas great. and thought. Yeah. Hazak Thanks, Frankie. Always a pleasure, man. Have a great day. Have a great week. Have a great one. I'll see you next week, hopefully. I look forward to it. Okay, Mikey. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs>